Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Whoever did this, I forgive them. These words were spoken by Lloyd LeBlanc. Anybody in here know who Lloyd LeBlanc is? He was around, his event, his story was around before about 90% of us were probably even born. But Lloyd LeBlanc had a son. His son's name was David. And David's life was stolen from him in 1977 when, when two brothers who pretended to be police officers with fake badges and armed with 22s, they took David from his car with his girlfriend and they assaulted the young woman in front of David and they put them in a ditch uh, face down and they opened fire. One brother actually holding a flashlight so that the other could see where he's aiming. And when Lloyd, the father, was called to identify the body of his own son, it was reported then, and not only then, but also in the very popular book, which retold this entire account titled Dead Man Walking. It was made into a film and won tons of Academy Awards. But then that Lloyd, it was, you know, it was reported then that Lloyd, with flooding tears, said, whoever did this, I forgive them. Who in here uh, has mastered the art of forgiveness? Who in here knows its in and outs or its form or its weight? I mean, by raise of hand, who in here has forgiveness under their belt? Right? Not a single one of us. Why? Because there is nothing natural about it. Thus making it one of the most challenging acts mankind could ever bestow upon another. Forgiveness has to be one of the most unnatural responses in the entire human realm. Alien to our instincts and counter to our emotions and will. Bishop Westcott expresses it this way. Nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness, whereas nothing, if we look deeply, is more mysterious or more difficult. Thus why our culture and our society, both in the church and out, simply struggle to do it, or to do it at all. The church, where you'd expect forgiveness to happen most frequently as followers of Christ, it's just simply not true. We as followers of Jesus endeavor in theory to forgive all as Christ has forgiven all. Yet, in the confines of the church, or in the confines in our life, gossip and hatred and anger and resentment and grudges and long-remembered wounds, wounds can, still, can still breathe. Men like Lloyd are few and far between. See, forgiveness is, in general, just alien and unnatural, like I said, but Lloyd LeBlanc also models an even greater spectrum of forgiveness. You see, he could have rationalized his perpetual bitterness, right? Or said, I'll forgive them I'm just not there yet. I'm not, I'm not ready. Each one of us would have heard Lloyd say that. We'd been like, yeah, bro, take your time. Okay, sure. But he didn't. Lloyd didn't. He forgave immediately. And without qualifications, the very killer of his, of his own 17-year-old son. Again, a most awe-inspiring response to suffering. If we for the last two weeks have sort of like Lewis and Clark our way through the meaning and purpose of suffering, then last week we talked about the readiness and willingness to suffer. Today we choose the path of response. 
How do we as Christians, how do we as God's beloved, respond to this world which is brimming with suffering and evil? Or in our own life, which is brimming at times with great evil or great suffering? See, we may better understand it. We may even better be ready for it. But now, once we're in it, or we've come out on the other side of the valley, the shadow of death, how do we respond? Because it is our response that is about the only thing that we can offer in our suffering. None of us can control the severity of our suffering or the form of our suffering or the duration of our suffering, but we are given a freedom to respond however we choose. And for most of us, if not all of us, a response to suffering is either one of vengefulness or one, of, one as, as victims or as victors. Now, think of the last time you truly suffered. Think of the last time you truly suffered. I'm not talking about last time you had to pay extra for guac or last time, last time you had to watch a Michael Bay movie. Like, when was the last time you really suffered? How do you wish you were, would have responded? Or how did you respond? I tell you, for me personally, looking back at certain times when the furnace was hot in my life, I... I so wish I would have responded dramatically different. Our first week in the suffering series, I shared with you about the physical abuse that me and my, my, my siblings had to endure from a stepfather. And even though I may have been too young and too mature to truly respond rightly in my suffering, um, I mean, I, it's crazy. I was just thinking about it today. Me, an 11-year-old, and my sister, 10-year-old, coming home from the bus stop and literally having conversations about how we plot out my, our stepfather's murder. And we were dead serious. And it would be just a 20-minute walk. We'd go, I could put this in his Dr. Pepper. I could do this. I could do this. And we were so just trying to figure it out. I mean, it's like a domesticated Lord of the Flies. It was a really horrific conversation. But even years after years later... I still wish I would have responded to that suffering as a victor, but I responded as a man of revenge. For years of my life as a man of revenge, wanting to see that stepdad just one more time. I wish I would have responded differently. I wish I would have responded like Stephen. See, when one reads the remaining moments of Stephen's life, I hope, we, I mean, we just can't help but be astonished. What we just read, we just can't help but be astonished. See, if this is your first time here, if you've been with us for a while, you might know or remember that Stephen was a man of God, meaning he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and grace, and he just got done giving the super long-winded sermon where Stevie basically was pushing back on the extremely upset audience. And get this, this is so radical. The very same dangerous affirmations that Christ was making of himself, the very same ideas that got Christ killed, Stephen is proclaiming boldly. And by the end of it, look at verse 58 again. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And jumped to verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Do not hold this sin against them. And these words essentially are the action of Stephen like strapping this huge target on his chest. 
And notice the purity in Stephen's response. Every one of us wanting the ability to respond like Stephen, but for sure do not ever want to be in the position like Stephen was. Stephen's response reminds me of Mark Twain's famous words where he said, Forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that has crushed it. See, Stephen's response in suffering and in death is a gift. He's essentially giving them a gift. As they are giving him rocks, he is giving them a gift. It's not a stench, but an undeserving fragrance of true, godly, gospel, biblical forgiveness. Much like Lloyd LeBlanc's response to suffering. And this, my friends, is where I believe so many problems can arise with forgiveness. Because forgiveness has morphed, has it not? Forgiveness has really morphed. So we could pull this room and get tons of different extremes of answers to what forgiveness is. Well, I think it's this, or I've read that it's this, where chicken soup for the soul says it's X, Y, and Z. It has become this Frankenstein with many perceived different limbs, like forgiveness limbs sewn on it, creating a monster of just let it go. Creating a monster of escapism or out of sight, out of mind, or forgiveness is, you know, bury it down deep, or forgiveness is bottle it up. None of which ever delivers health or obedience. See, Stephen wasn't being stoned and whispering to himself, just think happy thoughts. He wasn't being stoned and just saying, everything's going to be all right. You'll get through it. Just get through it. Don't think about it. Stephen's response in the fire of suffering was immediate, undeserved forgiveness upon the bringers of death. His response was nothing but fragrance upon the heel that crushed him. And as I was thinking about Stephen's response and forgiveness and Mark Twain's poetic words, I sort of just sat at my desk going, what? Really cool, Twain. What does it mean? I don't know what that means. I don't know if forgiveness truly, or what are we trying to get to here? What is it? If it's not just let it go, what is it? Well, Stephen actually tells us. Look at verse 60 again. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Collective church. Forgiveness is liberation. Forgiveness is liberation. As it breaks the iron chains of condemnation, and allowing the bringer of suffering into our lives to then live without consequence of their sinful action. No matter what their actions are, no matter how horrendous they were, no matter the weight or the scarring, it's to pardon the unpardonable. And it as well, get this, liberates us too in the process. This is rarely understood or seen in the fire of suffering that we are imprisoned if we do not forgive. We are imprisoned if we do not forgive. The prison of being Lord of their fate and the judge of their punishment. Louis B. Smeads wrote in his book, Forgive and Forget, he wrote these words. When you release the wrongdoer from the wrong, you cut a malignant tumor out of your inner life. You set a prisoner free but you discovered that the real prisoner was yourself. So Stephen here is interceding 
Stephen is interceding when he's praying for another and asking for Christ Jesus the Lord to cancel their debts. He's asking for Christ Jesus to not hold this against them. He's asking for Christ Jesus to liberate them from their consequences. Stephen releasing, has released all possible resentment and revenge and hope for nothing but their good. But here's where people start sewing on like Frankenstein limbs. And the truth starts to become false as we add to it or we carve into it. So what I'd like to do now is give some very simple basics. So five simple points, if you want to write them down or not, for understanding the falsity in forgiveness. I want to talk about the falsity in forgiveness that so many of us come up against. I've been challenged with the majority of these my entire life. Five misconceptions, five untruths. And instead of giving you an alliterated list, like is my usual, I did an acronym because I find that fun. And I read a lot of highlight magazines at the dentist's office. But hopefully this just makes it very simple and, and easy to remember. Hopefully it's easy to remember. The first false understanding with forgiveness is F for friendship. Please do not think that just because you forgive someone, you are now BFFs and going to Jamba Juice. I forgive you. Let's go get some Berry Blast. That is a false, false misunderstanding with forgiveness. I guarantee you, if Stephen would have lived, he would not be going down to the peach pit for pizza with his accusers, even though he has forgiven them. Forgiveness does not mean, hear me, forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Forgiveness does not mean reconciliation of a relationship. See, our next point will help us to understand that better. Second is A. A is for apology. I got caught up on this roadblock for years for years, thinking I can only forgive once I am apologized to. I can only forgive when I am apologized to. This is false. Again, I don't hear those who were stoning Stephen crying out, I am sorry, yet Stephen has forgiven them. For reconciliation, there would need to be repentance and forgiveness. I mean, it takes two to tango the repentance or reconciliation game. So if we have A, excuse me, if we have F, we have A, then we have L. This is a big one for lawlessness. Lawlessness. People have grown increasingly confused with this. People believing that to forgive means justice is then forfeited. Justice is then forfeited, or we call lawlessness then to have a seat at the table. This, again, is false. This is false. We may forgive somebody and still call the police. We may forgive somebody and still, you know, bear witness of their crime in court. We may forgive somebody and still get a restraining order. To liberate them from punishment is not to liberate them from justice at the hands of the law. Or our God who says revenge is mine, not yours. To forgive is to release our own hearts from enacting revenge on them personally. Our fourth false and understanding is S, that our forgiveness would be singular, that our forgiveness would be a singular event, that it's only a one-time action of forgiving him or her, or that we only need to be forgiven one time by him. You're still still hurting. You forgave me years ago for that. No, 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 no. Again, that is false. 
The truth about forgiving other, others is that we will, in our hearts, need to do it moment by moment and day by day. Lloyd LeBlanc, who you remember from earlier, again, in forgiving those who murdered his own son, he admits in his life that it has not been easy to sustain gospel forgiveness. LeBlanc said this, brutally honest. Bitterness continues to well up inside of me, especially on days like my son's birthday and other days when the memory of my son and the senselessness of his death simply overwhelm me. I confess that the struggle is constant and that the forgiveness I once gave them must be given over and over again. Deep in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, our buddy Peter, who we have, we've spent a bunch of time with in the book of Acts, uh, he asks Jesus a question. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I am, forg- I am to forgive him? As many as seven times? So now this, just know this about Peter. This is classic, vintage, typical Peter. The law back then would have said, forgive three times. So what's Peter do in front of his buddies? Oh, mighty master. How many times am I supposed to forgive? Seven, double plus one. Is that what you want me to do? Because I'm Peter. Like whatever it is, like. So what does Peter, so what does Jesus do? He melts his brain. It says this. Jesus says to him, I do not say seven times. And Peter's probably thinking, <laughs> sucker. So I do not say to him seven times. What does he say? But 77 times. For those who bring our suffering, we will find it not a one-time singular action. It will not be a one-time singular action. It will not be a one-time singular action. But every time the event replays itself in our minds, we will need to, for, need to employ forgiveness in our hearts infinitely. 77 times 7 times 7 times infinitely. To forgive that drunk driver, to forgive the abuser, to forgive that pastor, to forgive that friend, to forgive that professor, to give that parent, to forgive that offense again and again and again and again and again. And the last of the five points of misconceptions with forgiveness is E. F-A-L-S and E. E is for excusing. Simply, you don't have to pretend or just excuse everything that has happened. You don't have to forget, nor, are, nor probably can you. See, forgiveness is not forgetting, nor is forgiveness just excusing. You see, all of our suffering brings tragedy, and like every cut that scars, so it is true with our suffering. It is impossible to fully ever forget or excuse that suffering. But friends, please see the power of forgiveness and the ability to remember and know what they have done and still forgive. It is far easy to forgive if it's just supposed to be washed from our mind. Please see the power of knowing what you have done and go, despite that, I will forgive you. I mean, to forget or to Elsa and just let it go or to believe the garbage that all time heals all wounds, that is garbage. That is all escapism. True forgiveness is powerful. So, so powerful. Because it embraces suffering and releases resentment. To forgive is choosing to not hold it against them. 
It's to not punish them because Christ Jesus has already taken that punishment. It's to not forgive. To not forgive would be to crucify them, even though Christ has already been crucified for them. The greatest offense that was ever made was not mankind to mankind or man to man or woman to woman. That was not the greatest offense that was ever made. The greatest offense that has ever happened was from mankind to God. That is the greatest offense anybody could ever commit because of the sheer holiness of the one we offended. This, my friends, is what the Bible calls sin. It's a word that's been very lost. And we know the gravity of the offense. Get this. We know the gravity of the offense by what it costs God to pay it off. You want to know how serious God takes sin? Look at the cost it took to pay it off, to forgive. See, it didn't cost God the throne of heaven, his power, his character, the universe, and the stars. No, something far more costly for him to part with. And that was his very own son. See, if you are not a parent, you haven't known the gut punch that is your children in pain. It sucks to see your child in pain. I am the absolute worst with this. If my kids get hurt, I, I just take revenge on whatever hurt them. Yes. I'll never forget, like my, my son one time when he's running around, one-year-old, and he tripped and fell in like a toy chest. I got a hammer to the toy chest. Why did you do this toy? I mean, I would, the other night, where's my wife? My other night, we were at the Dodgers game, and, and a bee stings my daughter's face. You know what I wanted to do? Find the bee. And I wanted to squish it into its concrete game, concrete gr- uh, grave. Anyway, there's nothing more costly to me than our children, to me than my child, my children. So God, our Heavenly Father, models the costly, 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 costly grace and forgiveness by offering his child, offering his child to feel the sting of the bee, offering his child to cancel our debt. See, if you want life and life eternal, Hear me, if you want life and life eternal, it comes by way of God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Bottom line. It's not, oh, I'll be really good. It's not, I can't wait to, I can't wait to pay this off or I'll help them out or I'll donate charity here or I'll do something nice for somebody here. I'll avoid doing something stupid here. If we want life and life eternal, it comes by way of God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Bottom line. You need to, as, as I had to so many years ago, realize that I've offended and hurt and rebelled against the living God. But instead of God raining down wrath upon me, he rained down wrath upon his son. Jesus Christ took the full blunt of it. God had to punish sin. God has to punish sin. Because if he doesn't, then that would not be true to who he is. The suffering of Christ received is the suffering we deserved. See, it's only in Christ's suffering we discover forgiveness. And the heaviest suffering this world has ever seen was the execution and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus taking the execution willingly, joyfully, so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might be reconciled to God. And here's the thing. The darkest moment of his suffering wasn't the nails fastening his limbs to wooden beams. It wasn't flesh torn apart. It was abandonment by God at the cross. On the cross, Christ Christ called out, maybe some of you remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, we don't have time to get into all the theological baggage with this. Essentially, though, Jesus, in bearing our sin, he is bearing mine and yours judgment. The judgment was to have God the Father pour out his wrath upon us. And instead, he pours it out on his own son. And that necessarily involves a kind of abandonment. That is what God's wrath is. If you've never sought to follow Jesus, just know this. The most painful thing as modeled right here in Christ Jesus' own death is to not have God. The most painful thing we will go through ever could be the possibility of not having God. That is the most darkest suffering one could ever go through. Christ was forsaken so that you or I would not be. See, the answer to Christ's question of God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer answer is Charlie. The answer is Lisa. God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the answer is Joe. The answer is Casey. The answer is Lorenzo. See, the Bible is showing you the reality of being in fire without God is the most painful burn you or I could possibly ever imagine. I want to read a bit of a chunky quote. I tried to cut it down, but it's just too good, so I'm going to read the whole thing. It's from Philip Yancey. He says, From Jesus I learned that God is on the side of the sufferer. I hope we've, we get that by the end of this series. That God is on the side of the sufferer. God entered the drama of human history as one of its characters, not with a display of omnipotence, which is God being all-powerful, but in a most intimate and vulnerable way. On a small scale, person to person, Jesus encountered the kinds of suffering common to us all. And how did he respond? He forgave sin. He healed the afflicted. He cast out evil and even overcame death. From his brief time on earth, we gain not only a bright and shining clue to the future, but also... Pay attention, but also a clear example of how we, his followers, should respond to suffering. During suffering, God has intended us as children to be his lanterns to the darkness. See, and for people to see you and I and us and them, and for people to see us in suffering and go, oh, that's how we're supposed to respond in suffering. Like Yancey said, a clear example. And that clear example is shockingly different. It's unnatural. It's counter. See, if you've been with us for a while now, and by with us, I mean all the way back into the days of my living room, sitting on the hardwood floors, praying, and children around. Who was there in those days? Anybody? All right. All small amount of you. But if you guys were there... You guys remember our crazy hopes and dreams and vision for this local body, for the West Side. And one of the only ways we will be able to move forward with those hopes and dreams and visions for the West Side is to pull up anchor for whatever holds us down and to make sure that this community, this community is a forgiving community. If we want depth in our community and everybody's like, yeah, I'm all about it, guess what? People are going to get hurt. If we want depth in the community, people will get hurt. Thus, we need to forgive and be forgiven. If we want relationships, people are going to get hurt. Thus, we forgive and are forgiven. Every one of us is wounded, and every one of us will wound. Every one of us sins, and every one of us will be sinned against. Every one of us needs, need to forgive, 
And every one of us needs to be forgiven. My prayer and my hope is that it starts with us. We can't ever be this community that reaches and teaches and equips others to do the same, to tell the world about our forgiving God if we ourselves cannot forgive. If we ourselves are not loving one another with the type of love that just is heavy and that won't blow over with every small hurt or frustration. I feel the need to say it. If I have hurt anybody in here, I ask for your forgiveness. Not just as a pastor, but as an extremely imperfect man and brother in Christ Jesus. If you choose to forgive, it will cost you. If any one of us choose to forgive, it will cost us greatly. See, the evidence of God's forgiveness at work in you or in me is your forgiveness for others. The top floor of hypocrisy is to not grant forgiveness even though we receive it fully. Like, oh, keep it coming, God. Nope. Keep it coming. Nope. The brilliant Bishop N.T. Wright defines a martyr as somebody who proves he or she, you know, proves what he or she believes. That's how N.T. Wright describes a martyr. Somebody who proves what he or she believes. And believe that or not, Stephen is considered the first martyr after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And he is proving where his life stands, where his love stands, where his devotion stands, and where his understanding of God's forgiveness stands. And the same is required of us. And note, Stephen's forgiveness did not stop his suffering, nor does it numb his pain. Get this, actually forgiveness is a new form of suffering. Forgiveness is a new form of suffering. Why? Because it's a rejection of everything we intrinsically want to do to one another. It's pure hell. Forgiveness is pure hell. It's agony. It's suffering in the midst of suffering. It's starting a fire as you're in the fire. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, explains the new form of suffering as to forgive. He says, you are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Is there anyone who has caused you harm or suffering that you have not forgiven? Maybe you have a picture of them in your mind right now. Maybe you're sitting next to them. A great sort of meter or test to see if you have forgiven that person is if you can pray for their good, like Stephen did. Can you pray for blessings and favor to rain down on them? Friends, I encourage us to forgive, 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 forgive. You can forgive because of the gospel. See, the gospel is the good news that God forgives those who have sinned against him in life, in our life, in our times of rebellion, in our rejection. 
See, we can't forgive those who takes what it ours, or who steals, or who shuns us, or who speaks words against us, for those are the same sins that God has forgiven in each and every one of us. Do not, hear me, do not withhold forgiveness. Do not withhold forgiveness. To withhold forgiveness is to say to God, no, 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 you're in my seat. To withhold forgiveness is to tell God, I don't like the things that you're doing. To withhold forgiveness is to be the one in power and in control of our situation. To withhold forgiveness is to have no large sense of trust in God. To withhold forgiveness is a sin. Because we ignore Christ's declaration and mandate to forgive and we play God of their faith. To withhold forgiveness is mere prolonging of our suffering caused by others. The gospel compels us to forgive and it enables us to do so. It is a choice. Allow me to read this verse over our church. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you alongside with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Amen? So what I'd like to do now is be able to see this firsthand. Some of this could have been theory and a lot of talking from me, but I want us to see this firsthand, this sort of inner wrestling, sort of as an object lesson of somebody in our local body who has suffered a great deal. Almost a modern-day joke. So please warmly welcome Lisa to the stage. Thank you. Test, test. Are we on? Good. Good. Can you guys hear me? I have uh, notes on my phone. I'm not like periscoping everything you're about to say. (laughs) Please don't think that. Um, But honestly, Lisa had a chance recently to sort of, in all vulnerability, just tell me I think it took like, we had like a two and a half hour lunch. Yeah. And you're going to condense it down to like 10 minutes for us, 15 minutes, God bless you. But it, you very warmly and very, again, like I said, very honestly and very in a raw state shared with me some of the horrificness that you've endured. And so you've agreed to share it with the church for our growth and our encouragement. So would you mind sharing some of that with us? Sure. Um... My early life, uh, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, I was saved at 12 years old. Um, I was not a bad kid, but I I definitely had a rebellious and stubborn heart. I still do. (laughs) Um, But that put me at odds with my father, who had a very terrible temper. And um, uh, when I was young, it was mostly seen in my spankings. He... uh, It was always more abusive than corrective. He broke several things on me. um, And I would scream at him with tears streaming on my face that didn't hurt, so he would hit me harder. Um, And as I got older, um, into my teen years, uh, 
that it just it got worse. We our our, our arguments got violent. Uh, we would scream at each other, and he would pin me to the floor, screaming in my face until I was crying in frustration, and he would laugh at me. Um, I remember one particular argument that was really bad. We were screaming in the kitchen, and he sent me to my room, and I threw a dish towel that I had in my hand, and I released way too early and threw it right in his face. And I just remember it in slow motion because when I released, I realized what had happened, and I ran. Um, I was sprinting towards my room, and our hallway ended in a T, and to the left was my room, to the right was the bathroom. And I made it to the corner, and I was rounding the corner, and he caught me by the back of my, my collar and threw me sideways into the bathroom. And I slammed into the tile wall and fell into the tub, and I just ducked and covered waiting. And nothing happened, and I looked up, and he looked satisfied and walked out the bathroom, hmm. turned off the light, and closed the door. And I just remember being relieved that that was it. That was all that was going to happen. And so I was a very um, – I hated my father. I burned with anger and bitterness towards my father, and – um, it made me a pretty angry teenager. I got in fights a lot. Um, and as I got older, I learned to deal with my anger, and I had thought that I had dealt with my bitterness towards my dad. Um, but really all I had done was work on the outward manifestations of my anger. And when I was about 20, my best friend in college called me out on it. She said, you know, I know that you've told me your story, and I think that while you've gotten rid of so many external things, bitterness is still up key component in your heart and it could be seen in our friendship it could be seen in your relationship with your boyfriend and your other friendships with your friends and she was right um so I went and got counseling from a pastor at my church and over the course of a month we went through a bunch of scriptures on bitterness and forgiveness and the Lord really moved my heart to a place where I could forgive my dad without him being sorry without him changing but I had to apologize to him for my part in it and so I took him to dinner um in a public place and I told him I was sorry for hating him for so many years. I told him um, that I was sorry for being disrespectful and um, egging him on and slandering him behind his back. Um, and he said nothing. Uh, he didn't respond. He, I couldn't even read him. He, he said nothing. And so I was convinced that this was going to be my life. I was going to have to continually forgive my dad for, while he was still being a horrible person. And six months later, uh, he came home a day early from a retreat he was on. And I was surprised that he walked in the door and I said, what are you doing here? And he rushed at me and I was afraid. And he grabbed me into a hug and just started sobbing. And he said everything I always wanted him to say when I was a kid, he apologized for everything. And, um, he apologized for the abuse, for being a bad dad, for being a poor reflection of Christ and, and God to me. Um, and he swore that he was going to be different and things were going to be different. And from that day forward, he was a changed man. I don't know if that's when he got saved or if, the Lord just convicted of him sin and he releasing that changed, but he was an absolutely different person after that. And we were able to, I mean, through a lot of work, we were able to rebuild our relationship and have a really awesome relationship leading up to his death. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember when we talked, you got to this point and I thought, Oh, okay, this, this is intense. Wow. What's, I remember thinking, okay, she's an end it. And then it seems that even after this point, you, your life, threw you for another loop, and you even increased suffering really from that moment on in some respect. Yeah, um, fast forward to my mid-20s, and I, my older sister is getting counseling for um, some sexual abuse that she had as a child and that we had recently found out about. And one of the things that she had to do on her journey of healing was to ask for forgiveness for people that she had hurt. Um, in the years uh, following her abuse um, in acting out. She was 
your classic broken child. She was just er very erratic and um, I was one of the people that she had to apologize to and I knew she had said that she needed to but she couldn't do it. She couldn't bring it to do it alone. So she, her counselor, me, a counselor I knew and the pastor who was overseeing it all, all got together and she sat me down and told me that um, the first time that she was abused, I was also abused and then for several years after that, she abused me sexually. Um, and she was so broken and begging me to forgive her, and I didn't remember a thing. Um, and so I, I mean, I'm seeing my sister who has been this erratic person for so long and seeing her get so much healing, and I, I forgave her immediately. Mm. I said, of course I forgive you. I don't remember. It's okay. I don't remember. Like, we're okay. Um, and she was so relieved, and the pastor said, you know, Sometimes, oftentimes, when these things get brought up, um, memories will resurface. So just be prepared for that possibility. And I just remember leaving very confused and stunned. I was just kind of dazed with every, trying to process everything. And less than 24 hours later, I'm at work, and all of my memories start flashing back. And I can't control it. It was My mind had basically stuffed all these memories into a like a aluminum can and someone pried off the top. And so everything was just flowing out and I couldn't control it. And um, this happened for weeks. Uh, it was like I, I couldn't stop them from happening. It was like having my worst nightmares played in front of my eyes and ears while I was awake. So when it was happening at work, I couldn't do my job. I almost got into car accidents when it happened when I was driving. There was a point where it had been happening all day and I couldn't take it anymore. And I actually beat my head against the doorway of my closet so I could just not have to do that anymore, and I just knocked myself out. Mm. Um, I prayed and prayed and prayed for the Lord to deliver me from it because I started losing my grasp on um, control of my mind. I uh, started losing chunks of time. I would end up places and not know how I got there, um, not be able to count for hours that had happened before that, uh, and I was terrified. And I prayed and prayed and prayed for the Lord to deliver me, and he was silent, seemingly, and I felt like God had abandoned me. And um, so I felt like this was going to be my life, and I couldn't live this anymore. And so I decided I was going to end my life. Um, I don't really have time to go into that story, but obviously I'm still here. And the Lord used a friend to save my life and um, to show me that that was not an option. Um, I was not able to take that out, um, out of this life. And so because of that, I had to figure out what life was, what I thought about God, how I reconcile all these things. And I could not reconcile what happened to me and what was happening to me with God being good and sovereign. He could be one or the other, but he couldn't be both. Um, and if that was the case, then God wasn't who I was taught him to be. And so I decided that either God did not exist or I hated God. Um, and because of that, I was now living by a moralistic code that was irrelevant. And I was so angry. I had so much anger. And I wasn't angry with my sister because I knew well enough that it was not her fault. She was a child and she was acting out. And I, I honestly was not angry with her. But I had nowhere to put that anger. So I put it on myself and I put it on God. And um, the next several years, I, I began a, a, a time of self-abuse. I used drugs and alcohol and men. And I allowed men to use me just so I could feel wanted. Um, and then I, um, I also use self-injury to cope with pretty much everything, any disappointment, any, um, 
frustration, any anxiety, any self-loathing, which was a lot, um, I would cut or burn myself. And uh, that became the way that I dealt with everything. And I was very... um, I had isolated myself, and that is how I dealt with everything. I just... I poured everything into destroying myself, and I was very angry. I was just, all that anger was still there and still flowing out of me. It was just directed at something else. So you have all this anger, self-injury, suicide attempts, and yet here we are you're speaking in front of a church that loves you deeply. How in the world did you get from that point to now? Um, a few years later... The Lord brought a girl uh, to be my coworker who was a believer. She went to Reality LA, which was our sending church. Um, and she would not shut up about Jesus. And she would invite me to church every week, even though I laughed at her and said no every week. Uh, for seven or eight months, she asked me every week. And uh, it was one of those things that was funny because... She would say things. She was not just talking about Jesus, but she would just call me out on stuff. And I hated it. She pissed me off all the time, but I still wanted to hang out with her. And I couldn't figure out why. I told her that. I was like, you are pissing me off, but I still want to hang out with you. I don't know why. I know now that it was totally Jesus in her that I was attracted to and I wanted to be more around. But eventually I ended up going to Reality LA. And the week I went, um, the pastor started a sermon series on Hosea, which was a pretty accurate allegory for my life at the time Hmm. and uh even though I was broken down emotionally week in week out I stepped I kept kept kept, (laughs) I kept coming um and basically the Lord just showed me over the course of the next few months just how much he loved me and how much I was wrong about who he was how all these lies I had got up in my head because I felt abandoned by him were totally wrong how my worth was not in what I've done or what was done to me Um, that he loved me despite those things, that he loved me through those things, that he pursued me through those things. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I came to the point where I was ready, I felt, to be restored back to the faith. And I just felt this barrier that I couldn't explain. And my friend, I remember lamenting about that to my friend, and she was like, you know, I can't tell you what it is. I just know that the only reason that you could not be fully receiving from the Lord is if there's sin somewhere. And I can't tell you what that is. And I was frustrated. I was like, that's not what I wanted to hear. But (laughs) fast forward two months, and my dad is dying in the hospital. And uh, he had been in the hospital two months. Saturday, they said, "Um, there's nothing more we can do. Wednesday, he went into a coma. Wednesday night, they unplugged him from all the machines. And Friday morning, he's still alive Mm -hmm. and battling. And I'm exhausted. Uh, I slept probably five hours that entire week. I left his room twice because I was terrified he was going to die without me in the room. Um, And Friday right before noon, he breathes his last. We stand around his bed and sing the doxology. And as we sang the word amen, he self-revived. And I was furious. I was so angry. And I felt like God was torturing us. I couldn't understand why this was continuing to happen. And um, texted my friend. And I told her through an expletive-filled text what I was feeling. And she said, well, this is it. This is what's keeping you from being restored to the faith. And that's because you still don't trust God. The same thing that made you leave in the first place is the thing that is holding you back now because you don't believe that God is good. You don't believe that his plan is better. You think the way that you do it would be better and that this pain is serving no purpose. And that is not what I wanted to hear. I hung up on her. 
Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I knew she was right. And so I started praying to the Lord, and it wasn't one of those humble prayers. I was yelling at him, and I basically told him everything I had told my friend, and uh, I couldn't understand why he was doing what he was doing. And he spoke to me, obviously not audibly, but in my spirit. He just said, I have this. Do you trust me? And I said, no, I don't trust you. Look at what has happened in my life. Look at what you've put me through. How could I trust you? Of course I don't trust you. And... He said, well, I'm, I can't, I'm not going to force you to trust me, but you're welcome to go back to what you were doing. Mm. And I was like, no, like th- there's nothing there. There's, there is death there. I've, I've experienced all of that. There is literally nothing there for me. And he said, then maybe you should try giving me a try. Let me do it my way. And so it wasn't one of those holy spiritual things where I surrendered. I literally just gave up and I said, okay, fine. I trust you. And I really released it to him. And immediately, I was flooded with peace. And he gave me perspective. And he allowed me to see things. With a, I obviously don't know everything of why he allowed everything to happen. But he allowed me to see a little bit through his eyes what had happened. And I could see that he was with us in that room. And that he wasn't torturing us. He was just as broken about the fact that my dad was leaving as we were. Um, he allowed me to look at the times when I felt alone and abandoned. And... He was there, and he was broken, too. He was hurting, too, even when I was a kid and was enduring all of that abuse. He was just as broken about the things that were shattering me. And I saw his love through all of it, and it just broke me completely. He just helped me to realize that the whole time I had been asking the wrong question. I had been asking, God, where are you? And I should have been asking, God, who are you? Mm. And that is the key. I mean, that's, that is the key to all of it, is that the only way that we're going to have peace is if we keep our eyes fixed on who God is, who, who he is, who, how much he loves us, what he says about us. Um, it says that uh, in the scriptures that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that's absolutely true. You look at Peter when he was walking on the water and he steps out onto the boat in the middle of a storm and he is walking on water because he's looking at Jesus. And as soon as he realizes all the chaos around him and he stops looking at Jesus and freaks out, he sinks. And that is us. We ha- the only way to weather a storm, the only way to weather suffering is to fix our eyes on who we know God to be. Um, and that's the best thing that I can give as advice to people is in those times where you feel like God is not there, where you wonder, where are you? Why is this happening? Don't ask where he is. You know he's there. He promises that he never leaves or forsakes us. We know where he is. So if he's there and he seems like he's not, then we have the wrong perspective. So I have to remember who God is. I know that God loves me with an everlasting love. I know that he has forgiven me of all my sins. I know that he keeps me in perfect peace. I know all these promises, and that's the best thing we can do is load ourselves up with the promises of Scripture so that we have something to fight against when the world and the enemy comes at us with all these lies about us. Amen. Extremely vulnerable. Thank you.
for allowing your past to inform our present and future. So we appreciate it. Church, can we pray?